my wife Brandy is with me. Uh, I've gotten to know your pastor Josh uh, in recent years, in particular at some uh, pastors' gatherings. And, you know, pastors are an interesting lot. Uh, it's interesting to spend time in these meetings. And so I've, I've been seated next to Josh a few times and just really enjoyed uh, getting to know him and his heart. Uh, just noted, it's just a discernible humility about him that I'm sure you know and see. Uh, and what was evident throughout those days is his deep love for you as he spoke often of his church and things that were encouraged, uh, encouraging for him, things that he was looking forward to, and just God's grace in this congregation. So it's great to be with you uh, in person. Uh, my wife, Brandy, and I, we do live in the Boston area. Don't hold that against us if you're anti-Boston. Uh, you know, uh, we're originally from Oklahoma. Uh, we've been in Boston now 22 years, but originally we're from a very rural Oklahoma, a town of about 1,500 people, so a really small town. So getting out of the city, we enjoy uh, driving away from Boston and uh, uh, although where we grew up in Oklahoma, uh, there, there are not nearly as many trees. It's more like pasture land, uh, cattle, oil wells, and a few trees. That's the area that we grew up in. But it's beautiful to be uh, out in this area. And I was just amazed by the beauty, uh, the, the trees, the foliage of New Hampshire. And I could easily see myself uh, living in a place like this. So it's great to be with you uh, this morning. You know, I think many people, perhaps most people, long for something in this life that's really worth living for. Something that would make us you know, want to get out of bed on a Monday morning or on a Wednesday morning or on a Sunday morning. And something that could perhaps also not only get us out of bed, but provide some meaning and some satisfaction in life. Not just for a passing season, but for year after year, decade after decade. And there's certainly those on, on TV and, and many books that would hold out a vision and say, this is the life that's worth living. If you pursue this or you do that, that will help you to get out of bed each day. And so some of us look to uh, jobs, for instance, as a means of that. Maybe if I find the right career, that would be enough. But of course, the question is, what, what, if, what if you lose the job? Or what happens when retirement comes and I no longer have the job? Then what is it that drives my life. Some look for it in, in marriage or in family. They think that that will be it. And though it's a good and godly thing that God may give to us, what happens when the kids grow up and they move away? And if that's been the center of our lives, then where do we look? So I wonder for you, is there something in your life that drives daily living, that motivates you, that would stir you, Tomorrow morning, Thursday afternoon, Saturday, that this is something worth living for. Is, is there a calling, a mission that can shape today, but not just today, every day, however many days God might give to us? And that's what we're going to explore this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And today in our text that we just read, we're going to see this emphasis. You are a new creation, so live for Christ as his ambassador and embrace his great mission. You are a new creation, so live for Christ as his ambassador and embrace his great mission. In order to look at our passage, we'll look at three parts of our text. First, we'll see our motivation. Second, we'll see our perspective and then third, our vocation, our calling. So our motivation, our perspective, and our vocation. So first, we see our motivation in verses 11 through 15. 
The Apostle Paul here lays out two motivations that drive his life and ministry. But these are not only for Paul, but for any and all who've trusted in Jesus Christ by faith as Savior and King. And we see his first motivation in verse 11. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord. When we're reading that, at first we see the fear of the Lord. It raises a question. What, what is meant by that? What does it mean for a Christian to fear the Lord? Well, one part of this is connected to the context just before this. In verses 9 and 10 of our passage, if you look in chapter 5, Paul says this, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul points to this fact that all of us will face accountability before God on the last day. Now, for those who know Christ, who've trusted in Christ by faith for salvation, we will know the grace of God on that last day. And yet we're also told that there, there is an accountability that we will face as well. The preserved and kept. There is this way that, that we're held accountable for. How have we lived in this world? Of course, for those who don't know Christ, who've not received this free gift of salvation, there is eternal punishment on this last day. So the awareness of this leads us to live soberly, to think well and wisely of what will we do with the days that God has given to us. This fear of the Lord also involves a knowledge of God that includes an awareness of His greatness and how little we know, even when we know much of Him. It's a, it's a sense of awe, uh, that He is perfect, He's holy, He is other, He's infinitely different than us. So this is a, a right awe of God because of His greatness. There's a second driving motivation in the text. Look down at verse 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Now here, the Apostle Paul is referring to Christ's love for us, not to our love for Christ. Now, for Christians, we, we do love Christ, but he's not saying, because I love Christ so much, that's what drives me, that's what compels me, that's what constrains me. No, he's saying, because of Christ's costly, boundless, overwhelming love for us, that is what drives us. That is what controls us. That is what constrains him and us. The love of Christ for me, the love of Christ for you. And the center of that is in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection on behalf of sinners like us, as we see in verse 14 and 15. That one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So one has died for all. This is the one, Jesus Christ, God the Son. As a result, therefore, all these have died with Christ, nor that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for Him. Now, to understand the text, we want to see what is being held out is Christ's sacrificial work that provides salvation and is held out for all the world. Now, He's not saying that all are automatically, universally saved. He died for all in the sense that now this gospel could be held out to all the peoples of the world. So some of those nations that were prayed for just a moment ago, what a glorious thing as a church to pray for work around the world. So this gospel is good news that can be held out. And so a person in Haiti can hear the good news and believe 
and be saved. Someone in Tanzania can hear the good news and believe and be saved. Someone in Italy can hear the good news and believe and be saved. So this good news is now held out for all. And a part of this great salvation is that by faith, we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. This is portrayed in in what we celebrate in baptism. In the New Testament, we see this pattern of repent and believe and be baptized. And baptism was given to the church as a means for believers to publicly proclaim that we've placed our faith in Christ. And the act of baptism is a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ and how we are now united with Him. We are buried with Him and raised to newness of life. What was the driving force of this glorious, sacrificial work of Christ? The Apostle Paul describes it so beautifully elsewhere in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates His own love for us. In this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for sinners like you and me out of His extraordinary love. And it is that love that drove, that compelled the Apostle Paul. And friend, if you're a Christian, Christ has this same love for you. I wonder, do you really believe that God loves you in that way? I think it can be tempting as a Christian to say, yes, I believe in a loving God. And even sitting here this morning, you might think, yes, I, I believe He loves people, but you're primarily thinking about other people, even in this room that He loves. But you've lost sight of His love for you. Do you see that Christ loved you while you were still living in complete rebellion? It was not that you had begun to sort of pull your life together. It's not that you began to turn towards Him. No, while you were running away from Him in God's great love, Christ died for you. And therefore, this love is secure because it's grounded in Christ's work, not in our work. Friend, Christ does not love you because you've had a good week. He doesn't love you because you're here this morning. This love is grounded in Christ's finished work. So therefore, we're secure in it because it's based in Him, not in us. So you can rest securely today in that love. And when we get this, it can truly transform the way that we live. We live from Christ's love, not for Christ's love. And we so easily confuse the two. And we're trying to live for Christ's love, so that He will love us. It's it's this treadmill that we're running on. But we understand we are fully, completely saved and loved by God in Christ. Then we can love and serve passionately, sacrificially, energetically, but from this love, not trying to earn some love. And friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, we're so glad you give a part of your Sunday morning to be here. And I'm not sure what you understand Christianity to be, But the very center of it is this God who loves at such an extravagant, extraordinary level that Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to die for sinners like you and me. Friends, that's the story of Christianity. A gracious, saving, loving God. And we would love for you to know that Savior today. So these two motivations, a right fear of God and the love of Christ for us, are not a contradiction. 
Some might think it's one or the other, a fear of God and the love of God for us, but it's, it's both of these together. They are not at odds. So, friend, knowing the love of Christ and the fear of God, a result of that can be that we can be free from living for the opinions of others, living in the fear of people. It's a deep struggle, I think, that, that many of us face that I so often find affecting me as well. So we see verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So now in Christ, we live for Christ, the one who died and was raised. We no longer live for ourselves, and it is in living for Christ that we find true meaning and purpose in life. Here's where true freedom is found. So so we don't have to be slave to ourselves or to our own fickle hearts. So friend, I wonder if you were honest today, what would you say is the controlling motivation of your life? What is it that causes you to get up tomorrow? And is there any motivation in your life that, that could last until your very last day? If the Lord were to give you 10 more years or to give you 70 more years, is there a motivation that has staying power for you? And if you were driven by Christ's love for you, how might you live differently, living from that love? And perhaps you, like me, you find yourself at times holding back from sharing Christ with others out of a fear of the opinions of others. I know that at times can paralyze me. Maybe it can you as well. Friend, do you see that this different view can free us from that? Knowing the love of Christ and wanting others to know that love as well. So we see our motivation, and it also then shapes our perspective. So second, we see our perspective in verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul had experienced a change in outlook in his perspective on Christ himself and also on other people. Look down at verse 16. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So we are to no longer view people from just a human outlook, meaning looking at things only from a natural perspective. Paul is saying our perspective has changed or it must change. And this is because we've been changed, because we've come to realize and believe that the same God who could transform us can can also transform others. And what has caused this change, look down to verse 17, one of the most wonderful verses in the entire Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the Apostle Paul holds out this breathtaking picture, if anyone is in Christ. If anyone, friends, so so there is hope for anyone. There is hope for everyone. Now, this person must be in Christ, meaning they've turned to Christ by faith. They've repented and believed in Christ. So now they are in Christ. They are now a new creation. So this person undergoes a recreation by the great creating God. And Paul illustrates it this way. The the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, friend, it's a picture of complete transformation. Not just an upgrade, not even just a renovation, but recreation. 
The if in verse 17 helps us to see that this salvation is held out to all, to all the world, but it is not received by all. It is received by some. But for all who will receive it, there is this new creation, this experience of new life in Christ. So all this holds out this great truth and hope to us. If we are in Christ, friend, if you are in Christ, we are a new creation. Friends, a Christian, you are today a new creation. You have been changed. So, friend, if you're a Christian today, you, you are not defined by your past. No matter what your past looks like, no matter how, how dark and lengthy a time it may have been wandering perhaps far from Christ, you're not defined by the patterns of your families. All of us, if we look at our family lines, most of us have some, some dark struggles in our family lines. And when I think about my own family, I can think of generations of struggle and rebellion against God and a, and a tendency that would be natural for me to follow in some of those same paths. But by God's grace, I don't have to do that. By God's grace, not because I'm better, but because Christ is better. I'm not what I once was. I'm not defined simply by the family line of the cooks. I can, by God's grace, be different, friend, and so can you. This is good news for us. It's true that we're not yet what we will one day be. There's a day coming at the, the last day when there will be no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. I look forward to that day. And until then, we're not perfect, but friends, by God's grace, we are new. We have been changed. We are being changed. And friend, I wonder, do you really believe that? We need to believe that about ourselves, but we also want that to shape the way that we think about others in our lives. Friends, this should revolutionize the way that we think about those around us. Because verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, that means that anyone may be changed. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is too far from God. There is no case too difficult there was no one so rebellious that God says, oh, Christ's death is just not quite sufficient for that. That's just not true. So we should view every person that we see as one created in the image of God, therefore having value and dignity, and one who could be transformed by the grace and power of God. So friends, as individuals and as a church, we, we must never think, oh, we know so-and-so, we, we've known him for 40 years. It's just, I can't believe he would ever become a Christian. We, we must never think, well, well, I have this cousin who's always been so antagonistic to Christianity. I, I can't imagine she would ever be changed by God. We, we must never think about the person that we've known who's been walking in sins for decades to think, well, there, there's no hope for him or for her friends. That's all contrary to the gospel. So now we see that every person could be transformed. This grace is sufficient. So I wonder, friend, if you're honest, are there some in your life, maybe people that you love, but honestly, after years or decades of praying, you've given up on them? Because decades without any movement towards Christ and perhaps sometimes movement away from Christ has caused you to doubt if God really could change them. Friends, I wrestle with that myself regularly. 
some very close family members of mine and Brandy's who don't know Christ, who we've prayed for decades for, and currently no discernible movement, it's easy to begin to doubt or to give up and stop praying. So, friend, I wonder, how are you currently viewing the people in your life? Family members, co-workers, neighbors, students. How do you think about your peers at school? Are there some you've honestly written off? You've stopped praying. Friends, let's repent of that. Let's reject that. And let's be mindful of this great mission field that you live in. As we already saw earlier. All of us are on the mission where we are. So are we alert to those around us who need Christ? And the gospel is powerful enough to change. So let's pray that God would make us a people who joyfully engage and welcome people no matter their life story. Because they might experience the transforming work of Christ. I assume that would be the case, right? If someone walked into this church next Sunday morning, one of those people who everyone in town knows is evidently far from Christ, and he were to come wandering in next week, that it wouldn't be a thought of like, whoa, what is he doing here? But it'd be with great joy. What a wonderful thing that he's here today. Who knows what God's grace might be doing in his life? Who knows why he's here? Friends, that should mark our hearts and our churches. So we see our perspective, and also that our perspective then shapes our vocation. That brings us third to our vocation in verses 18 through 21. Paul helps us see another aspect of this great salvation. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. So here we see the picture of the reconciling work of Christ. And what is so unique and profound is that usually, in order for reconciliation to happen, the one who needs to be reconciled, the offender, is to go to the one who's been offended. It's not typically the one who's been offended goes to the offender in order to establish reconciliation. So, in fact, it it should be us going to God. We're the offenders going to him to be reconciled with him, but that's not what has happened. One, because that would never be our desire on our own apart from God's grace. But here the story of reconciliation is God, who has been offended, he comes to reconcile us. He's the one who has come to, to make things right. Imagine with me that you have a massive debt, financial debt of some sort. It might be for the first time you're able to buy a home, but the debt seems overwhelming. In Boston, it's school loans, hundreds of thousands of dollars of school loans, so so massive debt. So just imagine that you have some massive debt. It's Saturday morning, you're you're kind of on a slow day getting started, you've gotten up, you're, you're reading the paper online, you're drinking some coffee, and then you hear a knock at the door. You're like, nobody comes to my house. So you're tempted to not even go, you go and you peek out the... Another knock, and you realize it's the debt collector. You've been getting some calls from the debt collector because you've fallen behind on on paying off this great debt. And honestly, you've just imagined, I can't imagine we will ever, ever, ever be able to pay off this debt. 
And the debt collector is at your door on Saturday. You're tempted to just like act like I'm not home. But he says, at least open the door. And you open the door, and the debt collector, you know, verifies, makes sure you're the right person. He says, I'm just here to tell you, your debt has been completely paid off and forgiven. And you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm still kind of waking up here. You know, I may go back and have some more coffee. Did you say what I think you said? Yeah, I'm just here to tell you, to give you the news that your hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt have been completely paid off. I mean, can you imagine how that would change your Saturday? This was not that you went and made some lump sum payment. It's that the, the one who holds your debt comes and says, your debt is fully paid off. I would guess you would call some family and friends to say, you're not going to believe this. My friends, on an infinitely greater level, that's what happened to us through Christ. We, we were debtors, an infinite debt of sin against God. No means of ever paying it off in a thousand lifetimes. And yet through Christ's sacrificial death, his death in our place, the perfect son of God bearing our sins on the tree, he took our complete sin debt and paid for it. And so God comes reconciling us, saying to us, your debt is paid. All of it is paid. Not partially, not a new payment plan, not a refinancing spiritually planned. It is all paid off through Christ, now reconciled to God. Christ alone could do that, and Christ alone has done that. So, friends, here we see the, the glory of the hope of the gospel. So now this has been accomplished, verse 21. For, you, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in him we might become the righteousness of God. For not only is our sin paid for, but we're made right, credited with Christ's righteousness, his perfect life credited to us as he took our sin on the cross. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we, we would love for you to have the chance to explore this glorious, reconciling God. To see that it's not that we pay off our debt through religious devotion. That's not what Christianity is. It's not that we clean ourselves up and then God forgives our debt. But it's while we were far from God, Christ paid for this debt. And now holds out a free gift of salvation to any and all who would receive it by faith. And friend, if this is new to you, there are lots of people in this room who would love to tell you more about Jesus. And I would just come in to you just to have some time to just read the Bible. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word. Take the scriptures. Read it with someone from this church. They would love to help you know this great reconciling God. It shouldn't be surprising that if we've been transformed as new creations, that this would transform all of life and give us a new calling or a new vocation. And Paul shows us this, look at verse 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So those who've been reconciled now have the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. And Paul tells us more, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So in Christ, we are now citizens of his kingdom and now representatives, ambassadors. We're all ambassadors, and what ambassadors do is they represent another king, another kingdom in another place. And so as a, as a country, when we send an ambassador to another nation, they represent the U.S. there, and they speak not for themselves, though. Ambassadors don't make up their own ideas. They're not supposed to, at least. They're supposed to communicate from the leadership of that country. So we as ambassadors, we don't create a new message, but we're sent by our King Jesus on behalf of his kingdom, and we go and tell his good news. And friend, it is through these ambassadors, through you and me, that God makes his appeal. Verse 20, the content of our appeal, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And friend, honestly, this is God's strange method. What is God's plan to reach the world that they might know of this glorious saving gift that Christ has provided? It's you and me. That's the method. God takes those who have been reconciled and he says, go tell others that they too can be reconciled. Honestly, it seems like a sketchy plan. <laughs> like, we're it. Like, this, this is the team. How's he going to reach this part of New Hampshire? You and other like-minded churches, this is the plan. No one else is coming in here. People are not parachuting in from other places, not super Christians from elsewhere. You're the plan. Now, what's the plan to reach places like Italy and Tanzania where there may not be Christians. It's Christians relocate to go and tell. Friends, this is God's plan. Ambassadors like us going and telling. So Christ alone could reconcile, but he sends us to go and tell of his reconciling work. But friends, notice the urgency. Notice how Paul says that. He says, we implore you. We're urging you. We're begging you. This is not saying to you, hey, did you know there's a new Dunkin' Donuts down the street? Just wanted to inform you. Now, in my heart, that's good news. Anytime there's a new Dunkin' Donuts around, I, I, I'm a loyalist to Dunkin' Donuts, but I'm not going to try to persuade you to that. I'm not going to try to implore you to that. But here, it's, it's a passionate, personal appeal driven by Christ's love for us. I told you that Brandy and I grew up in Oklahoma. Our kids grew up in Boston. So our daughter was two when we moved there. Our son was born there. But our daughter, who's the oldest, after she grew up in Boston, decided she wanted to go away to college, away from her parents, evidently. She wanted to go away to college, but near some family. So she decided to go to Oklahoma, near her grandparents. And her boss, she worked at this little uh, cafe. And so she, she went, her boss knew she was going there. Her boss is from Boston. And finally, she went to, to work one day, and her boss said to her, Hannah, you cannot go to Oklahoma. She's like, Why? She said, you will die in a tornado. <laughs> okay, okay, not exactly what we thought was going to happen there, but she was convinced that they have tornadoes all the time, and you will surely die. Well, there are tornadoes all the time. They're very common. Uh, but also, there, there are some means of warning there. We don't have them in Boston. Maybe you've seen one or you haven't. They have these sirens that are mounted on poles all around every town in a place like Oklahoma. And they are very loud sirens. So if you're asleep at night, and there's a tornado, the siren goes off, and the, the goal is to wake you up, that you would go and seek cover, because if not, you can die like Hannah's boss thought. So a siren is good and valuable. It's, it's a warning. 
there's an even better, more substantial warning than that. So imagine with me, you're in Oklahoma and a tornado comes, the siren goes off, but you know you have a, a next door neighbor whose hearing is not good, who may not hear the siren. Well, out of love, what should you do? You should go to their house and bang on the door and try to wake them up and try to urge them, to implore them to seek safety that they might survive, that they might live. Because it's a life or death matter. Friend, that's the sense of what Paul is saying here, that we go imploring people. We're going to those around this community to family members and friends who, who need Christ, who need to be reconciled, and Christ has provided it. And so we, we don't go to manipulate, but we do go to implore, to beg, to seek to persuade. Turn to Christ. And friends, that's for all of us, not for just a few kind of crazies in the church. It's tempting to think, oh yeah, we've got, you know, this, this handful of folks, they're, they're really passionate, so we'll just encourage them. We'll cheer them on. They'll go and tell. But this, as far as I can tell, Paul's saying this is for all of us. It's for me and for you to go and tell and to seek to implore them to turn to Christ. And friends, this calling, this vocation is for every Christian. And it is for all of life. And there is no retirement from it. We, we don't get to a place, as a Christian, we say, you know what, I've been serving faithfully now. It's time to turn over the ministry to this younger group. I'm just going to kind of cruise from here. Well, it's a, it's a wise thing to, to pass on and share ministry. But as far as leaving the mission, you don't get to leave until you go and be with Jesus. So friends, this, therefore, this is, a, this is a lifelong calling, vocation for all of us. And this then gives meaning to any job. No matter what your job is, that's your mission field. Students, if you're in school somewhere, that's your mission field. Your neighborhood, wherever you live, that's your mission field. Every encounter we have, every neighborhood, that is our mission field. So what do we do, friends? We, we pray. We pray for the mission. We pray for one another. We pray for the church. We pray for others as you did globally. We also join together in this. This missionary task of reaching this area of New Hampshire is not for individual Christians, but it is for the church. Evangelism is a, a community project. So imagine with me that, that you're, you have a next-door neighbor and you get to know them. You're the only Christian they know. That's a wonderful thing. But it's also, they're only seeing one small aspect of Christianity through you. So they think all Christians are like you. So let's say, you know, you, you have certain hobbies and they think, well, all Christians must do that. But then once you bring them here to this church, they begin to say, they're not all the same. Different ages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, all together in the church. That's why we need the church together in evangelism. And as you think about those co-workers, we want, to, we want to plan and think through what might be a next step in this relationship with a co-worker? What might be a next step in a relationship with a neighbor? It might be simply to have a conversation for the first time about the fact that you were a Christian. That might show up and they say on tomorrow afternoon, what did you do on Sunday? And you have to be like, you don't have to be weird. You say, I, I went to church. I just normally go to, I know it sounds crazy. I usually go to church on Sundays. I really have this church that I love. That's just one small step. It's not enough, but it can start to open the conversation. It might be with one of these Christmas services. Friends, people in our area are open to invitations around Christmas more, I think, than any other time of the year. 
Everybody likes to sing Christmas carols. But friend, if, if you're not a Christian, where do you get to sing carols with other people? There really isn't a venue to do that. So if you invite a coworker, say, you know, my church is having this carol service. We'd love for you to come with us. We're going to sing carols. I think you'd be surprised how many people might be willing. And if not this year, your invitation this year that they turn down might open the door to next year. And then eventually it may lead to an invitation to perhaps a, you invite them over to your house for dinner. And you get to have a more in-depth conversation about faith. It may be in time you invite them, say, hey, would you be interested in reading the Bible with me? I often just read the Bible with people. Maybe we could just read a portion of one of the gospel accounts. You might be inviting them to a Sunday service. There are a variety of things that we do together. And friends, this is why we also think about planting churches, right? So that there would be more and more sort of outposts of the kingdom. So where we are in Boston, just a few miles seems like a very long distance. So we plant churches so that someone, Christians will drive a long way to go to church. But if I'm not a Christian, am I going to drive 40 minutes to church? Maybe once, maybe twice, but probably not in an ongoing way. So, so that's why we would say, what, when we plant churches, it would be so that they would be in closer proximity to those who don't know Christ, a local church that they could go to. Another way that you could join in that. And then, friends, beyond New England, beyond the U.S., the nations. Friends, statistically, I think New Hampshire is often like you've passed Massachusetts as the least reached church supposedly in North America. It's not a list necessarily we want to be on, but those are just the stats. But friends, we should also be mindful, compared to so many parts of the world, New Hampshire is the Bible Belt. Because there's so many parts of the world where people have literally no access to the gospel. There is no church in their heart language. There is no congregation like that. So, friends, there's much work to be done in New Hampshire. But, friends, some of you in this room, God may stir, God may call to go to an unreached place, to go learn a new language, learn a new culture, that people would hear this good news, that you might be able to implore them to turn to Christ in their heart language they might hear for the very first time. Friends, what a beautiful legacy of this church if over the next 10, 20, 30 years, there's a steady stream of people going to the nations, young people and retired people, leveraging what God has given them to go and tell. Friends, that is the mission. And we never leave the mission. We're always on the mission no matter how many years we have. So friends of church, let's pray together that God would stir you, God would stir us, that God would give us opportunities that God would save some. God will save some by his grace. So we do this mission with great hope. Friends, we have been brought into this great mission of our king. Friends, you are a new creation, so em embrace this role as ambassador. You are a beloved ambassador of the king. So go and tell others of this loving king. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your goodness and for your grace. I'm thankful for this church in this place holding out the gospel. Thank you for the, the fruitfulness that is here. We pray for more of that. Father, help us to see this mission that is for all of life. I pray you'd raise up some young and older to go to the nations. I pray you'd open all of our eyes to the opportunities we have, even this week, to have a conversation, to make an invitation. I pray that the carol services this year, there'd be, there'd be more people who don't know Christ than ever before gladly joining in this church. 
Father, we're thankful for your love for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.